Acts chapter 21 is where we're going to be headed in Scripture this morning as we continue our journey through the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And as you guys make your way to Acts 21, uh, where we have, what we have seen through the last several months of journey in the life of the Apostle Paul is that uh, God gave him a very wonderful calling. On the road to Damascus, Paul was struck there off his horse, a bright shining light, and the Lord uh, spoke to him right there. He was converted amazingly from Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. And what we see in chapter 9, verse 15, is God gave Paul a very specific message. In fact, he told Paul that he was to go before uh, Gentiles before, and also uh, before the children of Israel. He gave them that message and in uh, that order. And so what we find is that after Paul is called miraculously uh, there in chapter 9, he then goes to uh, Damascus. He is able to receive his sight again, and he leaves from there, and he goes into the desert of Arabia. Galatians tells us, that he spends three years in a Jesus University, I'd call it. They're in Arabia, being taught through the Old Testament scriptures how Christ is actually revealed. And so Paul has this amazing time with the Lord there in Arabia, only to go back to Damascus, and there, remember his calling was to teach Gentiles, to teach kings, and to teach Jews in that order. But he goes back to Damascus, and he first goes to the Jews there in Damascus. And what happens as he goes to these uh, Jews there to show them Christ in their Old Testament is uh, they threaten to kill Paul. They, they have this whole uh, uprising to find Paul and to kill him. And so what has to happen is he is lowered down at night uh, in a basket over the wall to avoid a certain death. And so what we see is early in Paul's ministry, he is uh, let down by his own brothers, right? So he is literally let down off the wall only to head from there to Jerusalem, which is the capital, the epicenter of all things Jewish is right there in Jerusalem. And Paul, and he again begins to, to teach and speak to the church leaders and to begin to, to teach Christ in their Old Testament scripture, uh, only for them to, uh, you guessed it, want to uh, kill him. <laughs> they, they wouldn't have anything to do with his message. And so Paul is then shipped out by the early church back to his hometown of Tarsus, where he would spend 13 years, essentially, on the shelf. For over a decade, he's spent in his hometown hoping for an opportunity to teach. And it comes at the phone call. They didn't have phones, but you get the idea. At the phone call of his old buddy Barnabas, whose name means a son of encouragement. He calls his buddy Paul to lift him up, to encourage him, to say, hey, we've got some movement happening. And where is the movement taking place but with the Gentiles? Right? Who is Paul called to teach? Gentiles, and then the kings, and then the children of Israel. And so he goes along with his buddy Barnabas, and they have a tremendous outreach that happens as they go on the first missionary journey. They, they make a ton of headway in the Gentile church, and yet each and every place they would go in Asia Minor, Paul's MO, his modus operandi, was to take the message to first the Jew and then the Gentile. And so Paul has this heart, this passion for the Jewish people, yet each time he takes the message to the Jews first, uh, they try to kill him. Repeatedly, over and over again, they run him off. And so as we come to the end of Paul's missionary journeys, he finds a tremendous amount of success teaching the Gentiles in both Ephesus and in Corinth, where he spends uh, five years between these two areas. And so Paul has a tremendous uh, ministry specifically for Imagine that, where God said he needed to go to the Gentiles first. But there's still this burning desire to, to help and come alongside his Jewish brethren. And so what we looked at last week in chapter 20 is Paul is going around uh, these churches that they had planted, these predominantly Gentile churches, and raise money because there is a famine happening in the area of Judea. So Jerusalem is suffering greatly. The church there has got major financial and physical issues because of this famine. And so Paul's taking an offering back to them, and that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 21. And we read, Now it came to pass that when, that when, uh, excuse me, I got off my page here. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from there and set sail, running a straight course, we came to cause in the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. 
And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. And so Paul leaves from Miletus, where we ended chapter 20, and he's meeting there with the Ephesian leaders, and they have this tearful goodbye, and they set sail, and they eventually end up in this area of Tyre, which is modern-day Lebanon, just north of Israel. This is the place that they land. And now, scripturally, because you guys are Bible students at this point, you know that Tyre and Sidon and Lebanon play a large part in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And if you're going through our daily Bible reading that we started almost a year and a half ago, we just went through this period in the Old Testament where the temple of Solomon was being built. And where did he get the timber for the temple but from Lebanon or from Tyre and Sidon? So there's a connection between Israel and this area of Tyre. Now, this also has a New Testament connection as well because in Mark chapter 7, someone that we know quite well visited this same area of Tyre. And in, in Mark 7, Jesus himself leaving the area of Israel because he was rejected by his own friends and family, he goes into Lebanon, he makes his way to Tyre where he has an interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. And it, so it's right in this area that he has this back and forth dialogue with the Syrophoenician child who approaches the king of the Jews and she has a question for him. Uh, she wants her daughter who is demon possessed to be delivered from this demonic possession. And Jesus, interestingly enough, this is what he tells this woman. Uh, Let the children be filled first in Mark chapter 7 for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Like, what in the world? He, this woman is crying out because her child has a demon, and he says, look, it's, it's better for the children to have bread before the little dogs. Like, I think he just called the woman a dog, right? That's, that's at least when, when you look at this at first glance. Now, in Israel, the worst thing you could call someone was a dog. They would, they would say it's better to be born a, a woman than even a Samaritan or a Gentile dog. Like, this was as bad as it gets. But the word Jesus used wasn't a dog like a nasty, mangy junkyard dog, but instead a, a little dog like a, a little house pet. And so he has this dialogue, and the woman responds and says, Yes, Lord, yet even little dogs under the table, eat from the children's crumbs. He has this interesting exchange with her where she says, yeah, but even the dogs, the little dogs, the little house dogs in the master's house, they still are able to eat from the crumbs of the table. Now, what was Jesus doing? Was he giving this woman a hard time, calling her a little dog? No, he was trying to draw faith out of her. He saw a glimmer of faith, and he wanted to see, is she going to exercise this faith or not? And she responds very quickly and wisely, believing that he can deliver her daughter. And the next thing that happens is, he says, for, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Immediately, her daughter was healed because she had enough faith to exercise it. And so the gospel begins as Jesus teaches there in Tyre in Mark chapter 7. This woman now is able to spread the healing of the Savior. Now, back to our text, what we see is Paul's landed in this area, and what he does is he uh, is trying to find disciples, or the word could also be said searches. He is intentionally searching out disciples, many of whom probably came to know the Lord back with the Syrophoenician woman. So he's intentionally, as he goes on his travel, looking for other disciples to worship with. I want to encourage you guys as a sidebar. It, when you go on vacation or you're gone on a trip, uh, take every opportunity you can to find disciples. It is one of the greatest blessings that we have been able to have uh, as a family is when we go places to get a chance to worship with people, to go to other churches. Take, don't flip the Jesus switch off. So often we go on vacation, we're like, Jesus, can't, go, can't take you with me on vacation. You've got to turn that switch off. But I want to encourage you guys, when you go Find a place to worship. You will be so blessed when you intentionally seek out uh, other disciples. Uh, a few years back, this uh, emblem I put up on the screen, this is from Calvary Chapel Shoreline. We were in the Tampa area, and right off of Bradenton Beach, there was a little Calvary Chapel that met in a local YMCA, and it was so encouraging to see them just teach 
verse by verse through the Bible, just like what we were learning. And in fact, those welcome cards you've got in the seat pockets in front of you, uh, those were at Calvary Chapel Shoreline. So see, there you go. You thought I was original? There's nothing original, according to King Solomon. So nothing new under the sun. We, we took the welcome card idea. You'll find wonderful ideas in different ways, and yet all celebrating and all coming together to worship the same Jesus. And so I want to encourage you guys uh, to do that. And, and Paul was determined to worship with these people. Now, verse 5, When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children until we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And so what they did is Paul and his merry men were getting ready to leave and set sail to Israel as they all gathered together there prayed. Not only the men I love this, but also the women and the children. They brought their whole family together to go and see Paul off after they'd worshiped together and then prayed. Now, thinking back uh, to my childhood, I can tell you that for a longest time, I would tell you that I was dragged to church. Anybody ever have that experience? My parents dragged me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and, and I would make comments in all my infinite wisdom like this, I don't want to drag my kids now, let me tell you, that was about the most ignorant thing I could have said at the time because uh, as a parent, I drag my kids all kinds of places they don't want to go. I ask their opinion about almost nothing, and I drag them places. But what better place could we drag our kids than to church? What better place could we drag our kids than to pray for someone and to send them off and to care for them? And, and here's the reality. It's not really about dragging them along because the truth is, uh, they're going to love what you love. They're going to be excited about whatever you're excited about. And so if you were like me, I was a regular pew sitter who just mouthed the word. I didn't actually sing in church. I just, right? But, but so why would my kids be excited about worship when I wasn't excited about worship? And so they're going to seek to emulate you and, and to be excited about what you're excited about. So for these folks, they drug their kids to see Paul off. And then what I love is, they didn't just stop there. They also prayed right there on the beach. And at this point in time in Lebanon, there were no private beaches. This would have been right out in the public so everybody could see. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, they would have all seen these folks and their families kneeling down praying for Paul. I want to encourage you, don't miss an opportunity to pray in public. I know it's weird. I know it's sometimes awkward. But if you get a chance to pray for a meal in public with your family, you have no idea who's watching. You have no idea who's going to be uplifted and encouraged because you take the chance to actually pray in public. Be a witness for Jesus in just the simplest of settings. Now, you'll also note that as they prayed and then they returned home, uh, there's nowhere in this scripture that says they were bummed out that they just showed up to pray for Paul. Like, was, was that really worth the trip? I mean, we had to load the kids, unload the luggage, get it all, and all we did was pray. Many times when we take an opportunity to do something for Jesus, it's going to seem so insignificant, and yet it could actually move mountains spiritually. There are lots of times where you're going to be sent places, it's going to feel like, did I do any good whatsoever? And I'm telling you, even the smallest of conversations, the little prayer that gets said, those things can change lives. So no one about getting together just to pray for Paul and send him off. Now, verse 6, And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy and greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. And verse 8, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, we are reintroduced to a character that we saw in Acts chapter 8, a guy named uh, Philip, who was one of the seven. He was one of the original deacons called into ministry. And this reunion between Paul and Philip is one that is uh, 20 years now in the making. Now, 20 years prior, what happened is uh, Philip uh, witnessed in Jerusalem uh, the death of one of his very good friends, a guy named Stephen the first martyr in the New Testament, who stood up for his faith in Jesus 
preached right there in the front of the entire Sanhedrin. And as a result, he was stoned to death. And so because of uh, Stephen's stoning, the early disciples were scattered all over. And as they were scattered throughout uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, Philip ends up in Samaria where he has a tremendous revival that was taking place there in Samaria. And so as this amazing uh, revival happening, remember he's Philip the evangelist, God picks him up and sends him to the middle of nowhere, to Gaza. And, and God tells him, hey, you're going to meet an Ethiopian uh, eunuch, an African man who is riding in a chariot. I want you to run and overtake the chariot. That would be like the Lord telling you to go run and chase a car down Woodlawn, right? Like, are you sure, Lord? But Philip, being obedient, he takes off and chases this Ethiopian eunuch down while he's reading, of all things, Isaiah 53. And he doesn't understand the scripture that's speaking specifically of the Messiah. And Philip's able to overtake the chariot and show him a Christ right there on the page that he was reading. So an amazing opportunity he has uh, to to actually lead this Ethiopian man to the Lord. Now, from here, Philip leaves Gaza and goes up to Caesarea Maritime, right along the coast of the Mediterranean, where he uh, apparently actually establishes a family and has the greatest ministry you could ever have. That is, as a father, to have uh, men and women, to have young people actually serve the Lord. This man has four daughters who prophesy who love Jesus. I got to tell you, as a, as a dad, to have kids that actually want to seek after the Lord, there could be no greater inheritance. I want to encourage you guys, uh, do not be afraid to pray blessings over your kids. Don't be bashful about it. Lay hands upon them. Pray, Lord, give them the gift of prophecy. Give them the gift of evangelism. Lord, let them be teachers and preachers. Father, please bless them. Don't be afraid uh, to do that. Don't be bashful about that. Philip has these four beautiful daughters. And, and, and what I love about this story is, here's Paul walking in. The last time Philip saw him, he was Saul of Tarsus, openly condemning one of his best friends to die in front of his very eyes. And what does he do? He welcomes in a brother. If that's not a story of forgiveness, I don't know what forgiveness looks like, folks. Like th this man could have held all kinds of things against Paul, and yet he welcomes him into his family and lets him stay there uh, several days. They're able to spend time together. And now these two men who are on complete opposite sides of the spectrum, two men that you would have said there is no way, no how they are ever going to come together. Our God specializes in no ways and no hows. He does. He specializes in things just like this. And these two are able to come together on common ground because of a love of Jesus Christ. Now, on to verse 10. And we stayed there many days. And a certain Magabus came down from Judea. And when, they had come to, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. So, so here they are. They're having a great time hanging out at Philip's house. And this guy, Agabus, who is like an Old Testament-style prophet. You might remember him from Acts chapter 11. He's actually the guy that prophesied there's going to be a great famine in Judea. And what's going on in Judea but a great famine. So Agabus is connected to the Lord. He, is the, he has the gift of prophecy and he is an Old Testament style where they, they love pictures, right? They love to show openly what God is going to do. If you think about Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel, right? The Lord had him lay on his side for many days to be a, a sign to the people. Or Jeremiah in Jeremiah 13, one of the weirdest things that God had anybody do. He had Jeremiah take his underwear and actually stuff him in a rock and let him get good and soiled and just take out his underpants and go, this is what the nation of Israel is like. These underwear. That's the Brock Ashley version. But that's what happened, right? These are, these are crazy stories for people to go, what in the world? We're like dirty underwear to the Lord. Maybe we should change things up a little bit. But here's Agabus. And he goes right up to Paul and gets up in his business. He takes his belt off of him. Now, look, I, I love you guys. I love a good handshake, a pat on the back, a hug. But I'm telling you, if you go to take off my belt, 
we are probably going to have some serious problems at that point in time. This is kind of a, just, this is a no man's land. We're not going to go down that road. But this dude gets up in his grill, takes his belt off, and then ties him around his hands and says, thus says the Lord, the man who owns this belt is going to be bound when he goes to Jerusalem. Now, verse 12, this is how the people who know Agabus react. Now, when they heard these things, both we and those in the place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. We know this guy's prophecies don't go. But Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And instead saying, the will of the Lord be done. They cried out to Paul. They begged Paul, please, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. This is going to go badly for you. Remember, every time you're around these folks, they try to kill you, and so they beg him not to go. Paul's faith, though, is so radical. He does not care a bit about his life. If I've got to give up my life, I am prepared to die. Paul's got radical faith. And I want to, if, Paul, if the Lord has given you something radical, something out there, big faith kind of stuff, uh, don't be afraid to follow that. And the second piece is don't rely on those closest to you that love you the most to be the voice of reason. You see, the issue is they love you too much to be reasonable with what you're sharing. They care so much about you, they can oftentimes dissuade or pour water on radical faith when the Lord wants to do something amazing in our lives. Now, for an example of this, I look back to King David in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel. And at this point in time, David had made a big mess of things with Bathsheba, and now he's gotten right with the Lord again. And God's shown him he's going to have some challenges, and yet he is not going to cease to be upon the throne of Israel and his descendants after him. But in this moment in time, David's faith is being tested a little bit. His son Absalom has tried to overthrow his throne. He's coming into uh, Jerusalem. He's going to overtake his dad, and, and Absalom wasn't the one for the throne, and David knew it, but he trusted what the Lord was up to in his life. And yet, as he's trusting in the Lord, and he's heading out of Jerusalem, not wanting to bring harm to his young son, he is uh, greeted there in 2 Samuel by a guy, a Benjamite named uh, Shimei. And Shimei is an opportunity to completely disparage the name of the king. He begins to throw rocks at the king, make fun of the king. I mean, this dude is a real, he's a real nose picker. And so he's throwing rocks, he's making fun of the king. And as this happens, uh, some of the king's family, a guy named Abishai, his nephew, comes up to King David and he says this in verse 9. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, the king, says, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Please let me go over there and take off his head. <laughs> I love that. Anybody got any Abishais in your life? Right? Family members that if, if somebody's messing with you, like, I am going to go lop that person's head off right now in the name of Jesus. But this is Abishai because he can't see clearly what God's up to in his life because he loves David so much that he is ready to go over to this dead dog. And, and Abishai is one of David's mighty men. It wouldn't have taken him very long to take the head right off of this nose picker. I mean, this guy is a goner for sure. And yet David says, what should I do with you sons of Zeruiah? Like, what? You guys are always wanting to lop somebody's head off. Can't you see God is working in this situation? And so many times this is, this is us, right? We, we've got something radical that's been given to us. The Lord wants to do something in our life, and if we're not careful, it gets quieted down or it gets water poured on it because of our own family. They just love us. And so there's nothing necessarily wrong, but we need to press in with what God is up to. So the Holy Spirit is now giving Paul these uh, heads up, these warning signs, and often he will do this, but it's not to scare us. It's to remind us who's in control. That's really what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate here to Paul, is to show him, look, God is still in control, even of this entire situation. Now, verse 15. And after those days, we packed up and went to Jerusalem, and also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. 
And when we came to Jerusalem, the brethren gladly received us. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When we had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord and said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought to not circumcise their children nor to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So here we see Paul. He has now arrived in Jerusalem. And he's going to get an opportunity to go before the church leaders and speak. And the first person he's going to get a chance to speak to is the leader of this church in Jerusalem, James. Now, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of our book of James in our New Testament. And he gets an opportunity to share with him what all God's up to in the Gentile churches over these several years and multiple missionary journeys. And at the beginning here of chapter 20, or verse 20, this is their response that when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. So these church leaders, when they're hearing what God is up to, man, they're, woo, yay, Jesus. They're all into what's happening in Paul. And then they blew it. At the end of verse 20, what we see is that they glorified him, and then they said, you see, that, brother, how many myriads of Jews, these are Jewish believers, are coming to believe that they are all zealous for the law not zealous for the lord they missed it and so what we see is as they are missing it and blowing it they accuse paul of forsaking the law which is not at all what paul was doing or what paul was teaching instead he was teaching the fulfillment of the law in the person and in the man of jesus christ in his life what he did was fulfill it not forsake it but instead, Paul was way more concerned about salvations than he was uh, anything to do with the law. He had a very laser focus. But it, their request to Paul is take these four men to, in order to prove your Jewishness to us, in order to prove that you still love the law and you still love our people, take these four men who have taken a Nazarite vow. This is that uh, vow back in Numbers chapter 6 where uh, in Judaism they would not cut their hair for a period of time. They would not eat of anything of the vine or drink any wine, and they would not touch uh, any dead bodies. And so these four men had taken this Nazarite vow, but also as a part of this, they had to offer sacrifices at the end. And so what James is asking Paul to do is go with these men and be their sponsor for these sacrifices in at the temple. Now, in verse 25, they go on to repeat this message they had already given at the Jerusalem Council for the Gentiles, that, look, the Gentiles are not to be uh, tied down to the law, but instead just these four things, keep away from blood, things strangled, sexual immorality, and any kind of idolatry. Very simple message for the Gentile people. Now, verse 26, so Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. And so at the end of their time of taking this Nazarite vow, Paul agrees to go with these Jewish brothers and to be their sponsor. Now remember, uh, Paul has gone all throughout Asia and the known world collecting uh, money for offerings to give to this church in Jerusalem. They're, they're struggling financially. There's a famine in the land. And so he, he comes with this great offering. And what they do with it is say, oh, instead of giving us your offering, go and take it to the temple and buy sacrifices for these men. They essentially waste what Paul traveled, risked life and limb to bring back to them. They, they essentially burn it up. 
quite literally. It was offered for sacrifice. Now Paul acquiesces. He agrees to do this. But what we see through this is a complete lack of flexibility for the church in Jerusalem. And so as a result, because they are not flexible whatsoever, uh, they become very frail. They become very uh, fragile, in fact. Now, what we see throughout Scripture is this continual trying to reach out to the Jewish people to try to reach out to folks about the dangers of legalism. A thing that still permeates church to this very day. We can be so overcome with the rules and the regulations we forget the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews is written to Jews that are struggling with legalism. And the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Whatever you can come up with, sacrificial systems, offerings, works, whatever you come up with, Jesus is better. And that's what Paul is hoping to be able to communicate to these men, but they're so bound up by their own tradition, he's just hoping for a chance to get through. So he's there in the temple at this point in time in verse 26. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all the men everywhere against the people and the law in this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the defiled this holy place. For verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they had supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And so Paul is now in the temple, and he's been spotted by some of these Jews from Asia. These are the same guys that have tried to kill him multiple times during his missionary journey. They spot the apostle Paul, and they grab a hold of him, and they throw a fit and bring up false charges saying that he'd brought a Greek, a Gentile, into the temple. Now, I know you guys love maps and diagrams, so on this next slide, I've got a map of what the temple courts uh, actually look like. And in this map, if it pulls up, uh, this is the temple in the center, and then the courts actually around the temple. Now, the outer area is called the Gentile court. This is the area that is okay for uh, male, female, Gentile, Jew. Anybody can come into the court of the Gentiles. What these men were specifically upset about is once you pass through that court into this next inner area, which is directly around the temple, you had to be Jewish to enter there. In fact, the penalty, if you were not, was uh, death. And so they have accused Paul falsely of bringing this Greek uh, into these areas and thereby uh, defiling the temple. And so this is the accusation that is made. Now, verse 30 and all the city was disturbed. All the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Once again, we see Paul being dragged away by the Jewish people and the doors being shut. <laughs> I want to encourage you, if the Lord is shutting a door, do not try to pry it back open. Oftentimes, especially when we love someone so much, we can get the crowbar out and we can start wrenching away on that deal, and we can ratchet on that thing. But the reality is, and Paul shares this with his young uh, protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, that the servant of the Lord does not need to strive. That when we are about the Lord's work, we do not need to strive. He will open doors, and he will close doors. And when he opens one, by all means, walk through it. But when he closes the door, uh, do not try to pry that thing uh, back open or strive to open it. Now, verse 31. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And now, back to my fancy diagram that you guys loved. You were thrilled with that, by the way. You were locked in to the diagram. But if you look at the diagram of the Temple Mount, what you'll see is uh, on this upper is an area called the Antonia Fortress or the Praetorium. And this uh, up on the upper right on the outside of the Temple Courts is built by King Herod in order to keep an eye on what was happening in the Temple Courts. You see, the Jewish people, uh, they love to get together and every now and again have a good old-fashioned riot. Like, there's just a chance. We're going to get together. We're going to start setting stuff on fire. So Herod builds this uh, praetorium or Antonio Fortress in order to keep an eye on things to make sure they don't have an uprising or a revolt. 
And now at this point in history, the Romans have taken it over, and they are doing the same thing. They're keeping an eye on things from the praetorium. So as people are beginning to come after Paul and they start to beat him, the Roman soldiers come down into the temple courts and they grab a hold of the apostle Paul. But I want to ask this question. Did you notice who was missing? Paul had taken four men that were believers with him. And yet Paul is drug away and he is being beaten. And where are these four men who he was going to go to bat for? Who he was going to offer money for sacrifices for. They were nowhere to be found. So that's a good question for us to ask, is when people are being taken advantage of, where are we often to be found? Are we like these men, the, the frozen chosen, I call them, who are seized by fear of the government and what might happen or, or what my peers think or what, what my friends might think, that I'm not willing to actually step up and stop something that is clearly wrong from taking place. And I think about how sad it is that the church was nowhere to be found for the Apostle Paul, that instead the Romans have to step in. They're the ones who end up defending him while the church is largely silent. Now, verse 33. And then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried out one thing and some another. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks, back into this Antonio Fortress area where they could essentially hide Paul because the, the crowd had begun such an uprising. He didn't know what else to do. They pulled Paul into the Antonio Fortress. Now, uh, verse 35. When he reached the stairs... He had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed, crying after him, away with him. This is what they're crying out with the Apostle Paul. Away with him. Away with him. And when you think about this scene that's happening here at the Praetorium, and or to rewind, as it were, about 30 years prior to this event, uh, there was another man who had a similar experience in the same area. In fact, this would have been the spot that the Romans would have taken uh, Jesus himself, who uh, his main line of teaching to these same people is, uh, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. And the second commandment is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus says in Matthew 22 that on these two things hang all the law and all the prophets that you treasure so much, to love God and to love people. And the people, when they heard that, they said, that's radical. That's too far out. We can't wrap our minds around it. Instead, away with him. Crucify him. And they took him into the praetorium where they proceeded to beat him. Now here's the Apostle Paul. He's already been beaten. He's now drug away. And what are they crying out but away with him? Now this may look very bleak, but I would tell you in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What better imitation could he have had? In the same area where Jesus was drug away, the same words being uh, cried out. A tremendous victory here is happening at the hands of the Lord, you see. Now in verse 37, Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, uh, Can you speak Greek? Verse 38, are you not the Egyptian whom some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? <laughs> so this uh, Roman soldier looks at Paul and says, uh, do you speak Greek? Now, this is kind of humorous to us because you guys know that Paul wrote uh, 13 of your 27 books in your New Testament, all in some of the most beautiful Greek ever written. I, I think Paul could speak some Greek. He could write some Greek. He was one of the most intelligent men in the world at this time. And so uh, Paul, of course, knew Greek, but their question was they thought this guy was an Egyptian who apparently had some kind of uh, uprising rebellion. And, and we don't know exactly why they thought Paul was an Egyptian other than possibly he walked like an Egyptian. Okay, uh, no 80s Bengals fans. Sorry, 
for those of you that didn't like 80s music. But nevertheless, uh, they, Paul apparently thought he was an Egyptian. They had no idea who this guy was. And in verse 39, but Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean or no average city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. And so Paul says, I am from uh, Tarsus in Cilicia, citizen. When he said that, what he was telling these Roman soldiers is, I am a Roman citizen. If you were born in one of the Roman province cities, you were considered a citizen of Rome. And as a citizen of Rome, you were due a fair trial for any charges brought up against you. You could not be beaten in public with no charges. You had to appear before a judge. What Paul was essentially doing was he had now flipped the script, and these Roman soldiers were now protecting Paul, you see. He now had a personal uh, group, a bodyguard, the, the most well-trained army in the world was going to protect Paul against his own brethren. So he has this opportunity that's been given to him by the hands of the Lord, and now he says, would you permit me to speak? Paul always looking for an opportunity to teach the Bible. Can you give me a chance to speak? And in verse 40, so when he had given him permission Paul stood on the stairs, and he motioned with his hand to the people, gather around. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, we'll pick back up on this next week, to be continued. So here Paul has this opportunity now to address the people that he so deeply cares for. The Jewish people are now gathered around. They're on the steps of the praetorium. They're in the temple courts, and Paul's going to get an opportunity to teach. Close today in what is otherwise a very strange place to end the text, I think a few things that we can take from this. First of all, I've heard this argued extensively, this question, did Paul make a mistake by going to Jerusalem? He had been warned by the Lord multiple times. The Holy Spirit had told him exactly what was going to happen. You're going to be bound. You're going to be given over to the Gentiles. And where's Paul right now? He has been bound. He's been given over to the Gentiles. And in fact, as we finish our journey over these next several chapters in Acts, uh, we will not see the Apostle Paul uh, not in custody again. He is going to be in jail for the remainder of our time in Acts after these events. And so the question is, did Paul make a mistake? Was he mistaken by going to Jerusalem? Should he had, have listened to what the Holy Spirit was saying and just quit, gone a different way? And I would ask that by also asking a different question for you to consider. What was his motive? You see, so often in our society, uh, we look at results and we automatically think that the results say, was it a good idea or was it not a good idea? We look at, at how well did you do in that scenario? How well did you do uh, teaching today? How well did you do in your job today? And that is how we determine successful or not successful. And I would submit to you that God doesn't give a lick about the results. Why? Because he already knows the results. He cares infinitely about the motive. God is far more concerned about the motive and why we do things than he ever is about what are the results. We are so results focused and oriented though we cannot get our mind to wrap around this that it didn't matter even if Paul made a mistake. And I believe he did not make a mistake by the way. The Holy Spirit was simply giving him a heads up, a good reminder that I'm in control of this Paul. God was far more concerned about what is your motivation in this spot. And so a little bit of insight as we come to a close for Paul's motivation. I'm going to go to Romans chapter 9. For the sake of time, I'll only read uh, verse 3. This is what Paul says about his Jewish brethren. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, What is Paul saying? I wish that I could be cursed, literally speaking, damned to hell for eternity if my brethren know Jesus. This is how much he loved his Jewish brethren. So if we wonder, what is Paul's motive in this spot? It was love. 
Why else? The Holy Spirit had already told him exactly what was going to happen. He was bound, not by chains, but bound in love. I love these people enough. I'm going to go head on into this firestorm. Everything else behind me. I, I love them so much that I'm going to allow myself to be seemingly in chains. But the reality was Paul was completely free. He was completely free in Jesus Christ. To the outside world, the results looked like this was an awful decision. But to God, the motive was exactly what he was after. And as Paul is in chains, think about this. He's in chains. And in this time period, he's going to write the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to Philemon, all while he's in custody. So what really were the results? The results were that thousands upon thousands, even to this very day, people are blessed by the writings of the Apostle Paul. And what he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, is that while I am in chains, the word of God is not chained. While I am bound, God is not bound. And so many times, I think what we do is we make decisions because we look at the possible results and we go, man, that's not going to go well for me. That's going to go bad for me financially. That's going to go bad for me physically, emotionally, spiritually. I am going to hold something back. I am not going to go for this because the results are going to go very poorly for me. What's motivating me in that spot is fear. And what God says is, I want you to trust me. I want you to operate instead of operating in fear. I want you to willingly be bound. Maybe it's going to look bad for you in the short term, but the reality is, in the long term, my word cannot be bound. You might be abused and picked on and kicked to the curb, but my word is going to go forth and many people are going to be saved. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we love like that? Are we willing to love like the Apostle Paul loves? Or even in the short term, we are bound, his word will not be bound. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Lord, we praise you that in the middle of our circumstance, when it looks like everything is against us, many times in that spot, everything, everything is lining up just perfectly for you to be able to have a tremendous work. Lord, thank you that we can be your disciples. And that in that, we can exercise uh, discipline. The world might think it looks like we are bound and chained, but the reality is we are completely free. Lord, thank you for the freedom we have in Jesus. Father, we are so very grateful for you. Lord, would you please show us as we struggle with decisions and things that seem to be weighing us down and seem to be stopping us from taking a radical step or that next step of faith. Lord Jesus, would you please encourage our hearts that you are far more concerned about our motive than you ever are any of the results. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand? Keeping secrets safe 
wondering if I could change Cause when you're hiding all alone Your heart can turn into a stone That's not the way I want to go So I walked out of the darkness and into the light From fear of shame to the hope of life Mercy called my name and made a way to fly Of the darkness and into the light There's no place I'd rather be is marvelous you have come to set us free you are marvelous your light is marvelous to me So I walked out of the darkness and into the light From fear of shame into the hope of life Mercy called my name and made a way to fly Out of the darkness and into the light La 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 Thank you, guys. Hey, there I am. Hope you have a great week. I'm going to pray for you as you continue to look up here deep in about what is our motivation in things. And one of the best ways we can see a reflection and what is our motivation is through the lens of Scripture. And so I heard a quote at the end of this week, and the guy didn't even mean uh, for this to mean something to me, but it did. He said, you cannot see clearly through boiling water. When we have the boiling water of life and the tumult and all the things that come up and, and simmer up to the top, you can't see uh, clearly. But the way we can see clearly is through the lens of Scripture. So I want to encourage you guys uh, to spend some time in that this week. God bless you. I'll be here to pray if you like prayer for anything at all.